welcome everybody to this week's episode. We really appreciate you joining us. This podcast really shows us how we can all learn, live, and thrive off of each other. By sharing our knowledge through our conversations, we will impart some knowledge whilst learning ourselves how to progress even further. Here is your host. listening to this podcast and you found the boss's podcast called keeping it teal my name is kelly knight i'm the outreach coordinator at lafasa and today i have jesse neablis and Brittany hunt with and um we are going to be dedicating this podcast to discuss the unique challenges that survivors face in the aftermath of a disaster um, as difficult as it is to function in a natural disaster, knowing you may not have a home anymore, knowing there's no drinking water, um, there may be some dependencies on different organizations like the Red Cross or uh, more uh, Christian-based like All Hands or churches and government uh, will bring in shelters. Um, and that might be all you have, just to have a basic roof over your head for you and your family. Um, but survivors of sexual assault have that added trauma and PTS that comes into the equation. So in light of Hurricane Laura, which devastated our state, the southwest portion of Louisiana, just only 14 days ago, um, we all thought it would be most beneficial to talk about this subject. So Jesse and Brittany work with me at LaFossa, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell you what they do. So I don't know, Jesse and Brittany? So, you okay. <laughs> so my name is Brittany Hunt, as um, Kelly said, and I'm the Justice Systems Coordinator at LaFossa. So I'm a licensed social worker, and most of my work is focused on sexual assault response. So I work with you know, professionals, allies, as well as survivors, and anyone who, you know, deals with a survivor after an incident of sexual assault. Um, you might hear my dog barking in the background. He's trying to join into the conversation as well. <laughs> yes, we are being safe. We're practicing um, social distancing right now. We, I'm having everybody join in on our uh, conference call um, line so that, you know, we can be, we can do this from a distance. <laughs> I appreciate the safety measures, Kelly. Um, this is Jesse Neoblis, and I'm the Director of Education and Prevention at the Louisiana Foundation on Sexual Assault. Um, and I uh, come at sexual violence uh, from a public health perspective. So the pandemic precautions are especially appreciated. Um, but I work um, primarily around primary prevention, which is trying to stop sexual violence before it happens. And that comes from um, working with individuals to um, train around uh, knowledge, attitudes, skills, beliefs, behaviors, all the way up to those systems that Brittany was talking about, working with the education system, um, uh, media literacy, working with uh, different uh, institutions in our state and our nation um, that enforce harmful norms or uh, prevent people from living the safest lives that they can or have the power to create healthy norms and um, create safe environments. 
for, for people. So I'm uh, really excited to, to join in this conversation. And truly, our, our heart goes out to our um, the folks in Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas who were affected by uh, the storm and really throughout Louisiana. You know, I was talking with uh, folks from the Wellspring Alliance families in Northeast Louisiana, and Laura hit their area as a Category 1 hurricane. So, you know, we right. saw that it had statewide impact. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think that some some areas in northern Louisiana are still, you know, waiting to get electricity. I think most have gotten it from what I've heard, but I think some people are still waiting. So, you know, it's just yeah. so widespread. And, yeah. you know, and for, for anyone in our um, Southwest Louisiana quadrant, um, you know, we, we are working with Oasis and we want you to know that if you need help and you can always uh, go through LaFossa if you are having difficulties getting in touch with other resources. But, you know, so based on, you know, what we were just saying, you know, it's been a lot of widespread damage and devastation, and there's a lot of demanding obstacles right now. Um, mm -hmm. So on top of all that, um, this just perpetuates and intensifies the challenges that survivors already live with. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, one of the refrains that we've been hearing with the pandemic, and I will echo it, is that uh, disasters exacerbate existing inequalities and existing um, issues that folks might be dealing with. So if your employment was uncertain before the pandemic or if you were living paycheck to paycheck, it's now even worse. If right. uh, your school um, was underfunded and under-resourced before the pandemic, it's now even worse. And we see similar things with natural disasters like hurricanes, you know, that um, they really bring social inequalities to the forefront. And, um, you know, these, these disasters certainly affect everyone in our communities, but um, resources and resilience are not equally distributed throughout, um, right. throughout different communities throughout the state. Yeah. Well, and that's true. I mean, I know that some... Um, some organizations will try to get uh, resources to people in very rural areas, but for the most part, you find a lot of these resources are um, established and you know at a community event center where you have to drive to it and you have to pick things up. Especially with government based, I know with you know they'll have MREs and water and stuff, but you have to get there. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you're dealing with groups um, who have experienced either historical or current oppression uh, from the government or from government agencies or um, representatives of sort of the power structure, then it's an added barrier because um, these institutions have to work to build or rebuild trust um, so that folks know that, you know, that they, they can be trusted, that they um, will help. Um, that they won't abandon the communities and that um, that they won't um, perpetuate harm. And that's something that I think all of us who are in a service capacity need to 
consistently remind ourselves of is that, you know, we, we really do have an obligation to create trust um, in all of the communities in the state. Right. Yeah, and there are a lot of parallels between the trauma of a natural disaster and the trauma of a sexual assault. Exactly what you're saying, Jesse. It's, you know, these events are devastating for anyone, but it definitely disproportionately hurts certain groups. Um, and that's in the actual event itself, whether the event is a hurricane or a sexual assault. And then also in the, you know, follow-up period and getting resources um, and getting that help that you need. It's not equal for everyone. Um, and that's really, really important for us to remember um, that these, you know, events are going to affect different people in different ways. So always trying to pay attention to the people who are harmed the most by these events. And I think there are a lot of parallels. That's something I've been thinking about a lot throughout the pandemic as well as the parallels between a national form of trauma that we're all experiencing with this pandemic or, you know, a community trauma such as a hurricane with something that's a more individual trauma such as a sexual assault. And it really is a lot of the same effects. Trauma is trauma no matter, you know, what causes it. Um, so for a lot of survivors who are now dealing with the aftermath of the hurricane, that's, you know, one more thing to add to their already full plate um, of things to deal with. Right. And right. I think for so many of the survivors that I work with, kind of the main, the main thing that we work with people on in the aftermath of an assault is regaining control because sexual assault is, you know, a way that someone takes control away from another person in a really, really violent way. So a lot of the healing work that we do is focused on having survivors regain that sense of control. And yeah, it's impossible to do if you don't have control over your home environment. If the weather, you know, such an out of control event takes your home from you, destroys your car, injures family members, that's something that really could harm the healing of a survivor who's, you know, working on those things. And whether that's a, you know, someone who is dealing with a more immediate aftermath of an assault or someone who was assaulted 20, 30 years ago, it can still, you know, bring back a lot of those feelings of helplessness, powerlessness, and can be really, really triggering for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the way that my mind and my heart. Yeah. Because right now there is a lot of not knowing what's going on. And when that, that just feeds Mm -hmm. into the lack of, of controlling your own situation. Yeah. Uncertainty is such a huge issue for survivors, not knowing what's going to happen next, whether that's, you know, in their own healing journey or in a criminal justice response. And that's, you know, times 10 in a natural disaster. So I think it's probably bringing up a lot of old feelings for survivors. Um, And that's something that is really challenging. And especially, you know, if the sexual assault center or the, you know, therapists in the area are not currently functioning at their full capacity, right? you know, survivor is kind of extra in need of help and with the fewest resources possible to get that help. Um, But it may be a time to, you know, kind of re-up on those coping strategies and those you know, different things that survivors have put in their arsenal of ways to heal um, might need kind of a, a booster shot on those for sure. Yeah, I think that this is very much a time to look at um, safety plans and coping mechanisms and things like this because we do see um, an increase in people who might be staying in unsafe homes and they may have been in those homes um, starting from the time that um, the pandemic came into effect and, um, you know, stay at home orders were issued and safer at home issues are still, um, orders are still in effect. 
Um, we also see folks um, after disaster perhaps engaging in survival sex or staying in an area that is, staying in a home that is unsafe because it's better than homelessness for them um, and perhaps also for their families or their children or dependents who they are taking care of. And so, yeah, you know, we, we know that folks lead very complex lives and um, there's, the choices are often limited. Right. And so, um, I think well, what, so you're what, entirely right. What do you think that someone can do if they're forced to be in that situation? Yeah. Well, there are some resources available that kind of give detailed ideas for safety planning. It's going to be individual for each each person. You know, for some folks, they may have to leave that home. Like it, it may be. There may be a shelter available that um, that they can get to that is going to be a safer environment. Sure. And um, it may not be the best thing, be, but it might be better than what they were already in. Yeah. For other folks, it may be timing um, when they're present in the home. Um, it may be, you know, keeping a bag that they um, have packed with things that they do need to leave, um, either temporarily or um, for good. Um, for some folks, it might be uh, checking in with uh, loved ones to, you know, on a daily basis or um, doing other things to kind of just mitigate the harm. But it, it is really difficult. Um, and yeah, like we said, these, um, these disasters can truly exacerbate um, the existing issues and the existing lack of resources right. that are in a lot of communities. Yeah. And folks can always um, call LAFASA for um, free and confidential um, assistance, um, as well as our um, sexual assault centers. And you can find the list of um, those on LAFASA.org. Um, and people who ha um, are in the service area that was affected, um, if you're in a different parish, you can find the parishes that um, that are served by each center on our website as well. Yep, great for bringing that up, mm -hmm. Jesse, because that's so important. Yeah. Brittany, what what do you have? Any suggestions or any anything to add to that thought? Well, I think, you know, there are kind of two groups that we're talking about. We're talking about people who, and they're not definitely discrete groups. There's a lot of overlap of these two groups, but people who were previously assaulted um, at some point in the past, and now, you know, the hurricane is exacerbating those um, issues, or someone who, you know, is assaulted in this moment, in this, you know, kind of recovery Absolutely. moment, which... Yeah. We know anecdotally, especially from Hurricane Katrina, that rates of assault do go up in the wake of a natural disaster. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that could be, you know, someone who, as Jess was saying, is, you know, maybe having to live with someone who's a predatory person because they have nowhere else to stay. You know, maybe they're at a shelter where they're around unsafe people. Um, and I would say it's a time to, as a survivor, really check in with yourself. I know it's you know, hard to think about your mental health when you're thinking about getting your family food. Um, and people tend to put their own healing on the back burner in order to deal with those, you know, really immediate survival needs, which of course makes sense. 
Um, but I do, you know, encourage survivors to check in with yourself and, you know, kind of assess when you do need that help and then to reach out to your support system. And that might be a confidential hotline. That might be a sexual assault center. It might be your friends and your family. So to, you know, really lean on your support system during these times, which of course is hard to do because no one wants to feel like a burden to their family when their family is, you know, probably dealing with the exact same issues they're dealing with in terms of um, recovery and rebuilding. Right, right. Now, but, but I think that that's you know, an incredibly important yeah, point. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, and so people true. know what's best for themselves. Um, you know, and oftentimes people are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place during these recovery efforts. You right. know, it's, you're either, you know, living with your abusive partner or you're out on the streets and that's, you know, either option's unsafe. Yeah. Um, but I think if somebody said, look, I'm, I know that we're all going, you know, we all have this terrible thing. Somebody may have lost a house or, you know, trying to help. I have several friends and family member in that area. And I know one friend in particular lost like the entire house and, you know, so yeah, there are people that dealing are dealing with that. But I think most people, if you said, I know you're dealing with this, but I've got this extra, you know, burden and I just need to talk. I think most people will be open to that. Yeah, and we'll listen. You know, Louisiana has shown again and again that this is a time, you know, in the wake of the disaster when communities do come together and people do support each other. So it's, you know, such a devastating time. And also, I think I'm just shown again and again, like how strong people are, how supportive people are of their loved ones. And that's something that's really amazing to kind of see right. everyone come together um, so to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So trying to be positive, have an optimistic thought, but yeah, no, but I mean, it's, I, I, I think you're right. Um, Jesse. So there are a lot of shelters that are open right now and there are a lot of people that are staying in shelters. And as Brittany mm-hmm. pointed out, there is an increase in, um, pervasive behavior, um, in these conditions. Uh, I know that you've worked with planning. So how does that fall into place? You know, right now, you know, what happens if someone is assaulted and then how can we take this and then do, you know, maybe give information for people to do better in case there is another situation? Yeah. So it's very, very complex. Um, as, as right. Sort of I know. Here. Um, yeah. Give us so the, there, uh, there are the... measures that, yeah, yeah. There are measures that shelters can take, um, to increase safety, um, in, uh, among residents and increase a sense of community and, um, you know, looking out for each other. So, um, many shelters, you know, will um, check the credentials of volunteers, make sure that, um, Everybody who goes in is accounted for and has um, the appropriate reason to be there. You know, you don't want your shelters to just be open to anybody who wants to come by and help. And as Brittany said, people want to help. And there's this beautiful human and community sense of coming together. And also that needs to be measured with wanting to protect the safety and the, the privacy of residents who have truly, you know, lost so much and deserve that um, that sense of security. So checking credentials of 
volunteers, setting um, appropriate boundaries, um, making clear requests of what people, um, what assistance is welcome, and, um, you know, helping people, helping to direct people kindly to where um, their assistance uh, would be most useful and safe. Um, you know, being careful about adult contact with children and having specially designated areas um, for children and young people that don't have a direct um, entrance and exit to the outside, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, being careful about um, creating an environment where people check in on each other. So having community guidelines, um, providing an orientation of sorts for new residents, and then reaffirming those norms. When folks come for the first time, they are going to be stressed. They're going to be overwhelmed. You know, it's not a good time to set rules, for example. And so those norms need to be continuously um, reinforced if people are not in a place where they can absorb everything that you're going to tell them. Have signage in, um, you know, clear language and multiple languages right. um, about how people can get help if they are assaulted. Um, have space for privacy for uh, shelter residents where they can uh, decompress, uh, have areas available if somebody does wish to, you know, make a report or disclose something personal. Um, I think uh, police officers and medical professionals can be clear about if they're able to take courtesy reports. Um, and that means uh, if an uh, assault happened without, outside of that particular jurisdiction, but that's where somebody is at the moment, they're able to take a um, report and then pass it along to the appropriate authorities. But I think this is a time to be creative, to reinforce our communities, um, and to establish you know, these, these norms for safety, checking in on each other, and um, really trying to um, restore a sense of normalcy when really nothing has been totally normal for the last six months or so. But um, you know, doing, doing what you can to respect that privacy. Um, and for individuals, I think I just want to reiterate what Brittany was saying. You, know, you deserve safety right now, and your mental health um, is important. You know, we, we, it's not just the physical material needs right now. Like trauma is something that can have lasting impacts, and it can also be mitigated by having somebody respond with love and care and compassion and belief. So, yeah. And if somebody does come to you with something, if, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you do have somebody that comes to you with, you know, this added uh, burden, then yeah, just be sensitive and, and respond with, gratitude that this person trusted you enough that they they sought out your 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 counsel you know yeah yeah this is absolutely a case where you know things are always heightened in a disaster but the response is the same you know i believe you letting folks disclose how they're um how they're feeling what they experienced um you know, not, not taking on an investigator role, but providing that support. And that 
support after an initial disclosure is so important. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, you know this. But spread <laughs> the word, you know. Yeah. But it's always yeah. good to reiterate these, mm-hmm. you know, these points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that we we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the recovery and mm-hmm. and uh, labor trafficking and things like that. Jesse, you had mentioned that. Yes, yes. So labor trafficking um, is often a little bit outside the scope of LaFosse's work, though we do know that it often intersects with um, sex trafficking or um, sexual harassment in the workplace or sexual violence. But I just want to say real quick, I told Kelly, I just want a moment to talk about labor trafficking and disaster recovery. So there's two things to be on the alert for. Uh, One, which gets a little bit more press, is the fact that sometimes people who come in to assist with uh, recovery efforts, you know, they don't necessarily have roots in the community. They don't have the same connection to the community as a resident might. And so there is a chance that um, there can be assault by somebody who is helping um, with the uh, with the recovery, um, whether that is, you know, in uh, regardless of what that field is specifically. But sometimes when there's an influx of new people coming in, there's going to be some bad actors there um, who are going to take advantage of the chaos that can come in a disaster setting and in a um, recovery setting. I also want to talk, though, about um, people who are victims of labor trafficking by um, companies that are helping with the uh, um, recovery efforts. And so just to remind folks that if the deal sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You know, make sure that the company that you're working with is a legitimate one. Um, No employer should ever have to hold your documents, for example, you know, your legal identification documents. Um, And they should never... um, they should always provide you with protection, particularly PPE in this pandemic situation, but then also other protection, especially if you're working um, in construction or heavy equipment. And your employer should always have you know, an established pay schedule and established pay rates. Under the table work can, you know, is something that people often do. You know, regardless of the, perhaps because of their immigration status, perhaps because that's what they've always done for whatever reason, but it does take on an added risk um, in a uh, disaster recovery setting because sometimes these companies are untrustworthy. And so we want to make sure that folks don't fall victim to wage theft or to um, labor trafficking. If you are experiencing something like that, I would encourage you to reach out to the Greater New Orleans Human Trafficking Task Force, and they do provide um, guidance and assistance statewide, but they do really excellent work around um, labor trafficking and helping folks who um, have experience with that. Would you advise advise anybody if they're kind of, you know, suspicious or something, maybe checking out the person or the com- company, I guess, would it would it be more individual ah. than this or would it be companies or how would that 
fall into the equation. Any sort of due diligence that you're able to do on the company, that is always a good idea. Um, you know, people will typically put reviews online or things like that. But we, we do see ads popping up in uh, disaster situations that really do seem sketchy. They promise, um, you know, extremely lucrative salaries. Right. Or they may advertise things that get a little sketchy around. We provide housing and right. it, it's all just too good to be true. Right. So, you know, do, do some online research, but, um, you know, watch out for these ads that really do crop up and that seem, I keep saying the phrase, too good to be true because it, it really is. Right, um, right. And so, you know, do, do a little background research and check out the company and check out the, you know, potential employer. Um, and again, if they if they're doing sketchy things like asking to hold on to your documents or anything like that, then that's um, a company that's raising up too many red flags. And I, I do want to reiterate that I know that this can be a really difficult decision to make. Turning down the job after a disaster can be a really difficult decision. Um, so we're not making these suggestions flippantly. Right. But, right. Um, but safety is of the utmost importance. Yeah, and there are predatory companies. So they exist. Yeah. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And folks who, you know, prey on communities after a disaster, it's it's a horrific thing to do. But like right. I said, Kelly, it is they do exist. Well, I Brittany, did you have anything that you wanted to to add to that? I don't think so. I know because I think reiterating I think Jesse really went and delved into that well (laughs) gave us a real good (laughs) picture of it (laughs) well and I'm just so grateful to Brittany for reminding us that you know a a lot of the um the discussions that are had including from me are about um the vulnerabilities that disaster presents for um, folks to be assaulted, but I appreciated, Brittany, your reminder that these also bring up um, trauma around prior assaults, and that our brain can't necessarily distinguish this trauma is related to the pandemic, this trauma is related to the hurricane, and this trauma is related to child sexual abuse that somebody might have experienced. It all it all comes together, you know, the safety of their homes and things that they usually would use to deal if they, you know, feel safe in their bedroom if they feel safe you know, going to their gym, like all those things are, you know, taken away and people can be kind of left with nothing in terms of coping and self-care. Um, right. Yeah, I guess my final point would just be to make sure you're taking care of yourself in any way possible um, and make sure we're taking care of each other in any way that we can. That's a great point. That's a great point to end on. <laughs> I think that's exactly what we end on, yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you all so much for, for, uh, joining us on you know being part of the conversation on keeping it teal y'all can call uh lafasa and uh or get in touch with jesse or Brittany if you need help with anything they are yeah they are very willing to help in any way shape or form anybody that needs something so they're always here at lafasa and you can go to the website and find out the uh the contact information there but they're 
wealth of knowledge you can plainly see or hear because it, what they've brought to the table today. So just so glad we could have this conversation. Yeah. And definitely keep an Thank eye out as well. I know we will be posting updates um, with, as they come into us with what's going on um, in Southwest Louisiana and with, you know, different resources that are available there with regards to sexual assault and domestic violence. I know we're keeping an eye on things as they develop because they're, you know, always changing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also want to put it out there that if there are nonprofits in the New Orleans area who are listening, um, LaFasa is working with um, some other organizations to provide capacity um, building training and technical assistance around disaster preparedness. So we're going to look at preparedness before a disaster, during a disaster, in the immediate aftermath, and for long-term recovery. So if you would like a little bit of um, individual uh, support around making sure that your organization is equipped to uh, deal with that and you're a nonprofit in the New Orleans area, please um, contact me, jesse at lafasa.org, J-E-S-S-I-E at lafasa.org. All right. Fantastic. Thanks again. And we appreciate <laughs> everybody listening to Keeping It Teal. Uh, listen to any of our podcasts and we, we're glad you're out there. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks.